This classic Encounters podcast is brought to you by Encounters North. To learn more about our podcast videos and projects and to support our work, please visit EncountersNorth.org. Hi, I'm Richard Nelson for Encounters, a program of observations, experiences, and reflections on the world around us. Well, this is a rare Encounters program because it was recorded indoors. It's a presentation given at the annual Whalefest Symposium in Sitka, Alaska, and it's about the amazing but fragile miracle of salmon. People gather here to celebrate some of the most charismatic animals that we're lucky enough to share the world with, such as humpback whales and killer whales, great white sharks and polar bears. Well, I'm not going to talk about any of those, but I have to say that I'm absolutely convinced that salmon are one of the greatest miracles of the living world. Well, of course, every summer here in Alaska, we get to witness this amazing natural spectacle. Salmon thronging into the bays and inlets, into the rivers and channels, into the lakes and sloughs, along virtually the entire 34,000 miles of Alaska's convoluted coastline. Millions upon millions of salmon, like living stars swarming toward us, from the dark universe of the sea. It seems like everything in nature celebrates when the salmon arrive. I just want to play a little track of what it sounds like when the salmon are in. Well, this was recorded along appropriately named Salmon Lake Creek, very close to Sitka here. There's a bald eagle, there's ravens, there's gulls, and the thrashing of the fish. The run of the salmon is a treat not only for the eyes, but also for our ears. And imagine the salmon entering into Fish Creek and Nakat Lake down at the southernmost edge of southeast Alaska. Salmon northward along the coast, massing into the Stikine River, into the Taku River, the Chilkoot, the Seatuck River, the Copper River. Great schools of salmon along the entire coast north of there, Susitna River, the Kasiloth, the Nanilchik in Cook Inlet and along the Kenai. Salmon in the streams along the entire Aleutian chain that stretches for a thousand miles west and ending in the last one in the peaceful river on Attu Island, salmon. Huge schools of salmon funneling into the rivers of Bristol Bay and the Bering Sea, the Nushigak, the Malchatna, the Kuskokwim, of course, and the Yukon. Salmon on up toward the Arctic, the Kobuk River, the Noatak River, the Utokak River, and then all the way around Point Barrow and eastward to the Sagavagniktok River, 
over near the Canadian border on the North Slope. These river names shape our vision of Alaska's beauty and abundance, and they speak of what's come to us every year for millennia from the salmon. All five species of Pacific salmon, each one known by two common names, the chum salmon, also called dog salmon, the pink salmon, of course, also known as humpbacks for the shape of the males when they're spawning, the bright silvers, also called coho salmon from a Native American language, the sockeyes, another Native American name also called reds for their brilliant color on the outside and the inside, and of course then the chinooks or the king salmon. I suppose they get the name king salmon because of their exalted status as the biggest and the richest of these fish. Of course, I need to mention there are many names for salmon in Alaskan native languages. In fact, even the scientific names for salmon, the specific names, come mostly from indigenous languages, given to them by the naturalist George Steller when he was going through Russia back in the 1700s. The pink salmon, Ankorinkus garbusha, from the Russian. The chum salmon, Ankorinkus kita, from the Nanai indigenous language. And then the silver salmon, Ankorinkus kisuch, the sockeye salmon, Ankorinkus nurka, and the chinook, Ankorinkus chavaicha, all of those from the Koryak indigenous language over in Russia. The Alaska Department of Fish and Game is compiling a catalog of the streams and rivers and lakes that are used by anadromous fish. Most of those will be salmon. They expect that when they finish this list, it's going to total almost 40 thousand waterways used by fish from the sea just here in the state of Alaska. Now everybody's aware that salmon use the big river systems, but of course they also spawn and hatch and grow in the smaller tributaries, even the tiny little streamlets that are narrow for us to jump across or step across. This creates a sprawling, intricate network of waterways which are vital for Alaska's salmon runs. It's like an immense circulatory system with arteries and veins and capillaries that creates this braiding of water systems all the way through the living body of the Alaskan land. Well, the most famous thing about salmon is their extraordinary life history. Every salmon begins its life as a freshwater fish. They hatch from those little pinkish-orangish eggs in the stream and lake gravels, and then each species shelters and feeds and grows in a different freshwater habitat. And in this way, multiple species can coexist without competing in the same river system. The length of time that salmon stay in the rivers and lakes is highly variable between species and subpopulations. Some of the fish stay in freshwater only for a few months after they hatch, Others stay as long as several years. And then they migrate downstream, adapt to the salt water, and finally swim out into the ocean. And again, salmon are highly variable. Their time in the ocean ranges from a few months, maybe six months, up to six or seven years. And different species and different populations have their own schedule. Well, then comes one of the Earth's greatest animal migrations. Equal to the migrations of the caribou, of the wildebeest in Africa, the salmon in their millions migrating almost miraculously back to their home streams. 
Scientists believe that perhaps salmon navigate in the open ocean by sensing the Earth's magnetic field, perhaps by a sensitivity to polarized light from the sun. We still don't know exactly how that happens, but once they're closer to their spawning grounds, salmon definitely use their acute sense of smell. Each fish being able to identify a unique constellation of chemical cues from its birth stream. How good is that sense of smell? Consider this. Some Chinook salmon spawn in the main stem of the Yukon River, but others turn off into a major tributary, the Tanano River. By the time these fish reach the village of Galena in interior Alaska, if you know where that is, they have started to sort themselves out with the Yukon River fish moving along the north side of the river, the Tanana fish favoring the south side of the river. That's 200 miles below the confluence of the Yukon and the Tanana. That's how sensitive their sense of smell is in the water. Their homing sense, of course, is so acute that some salmon, especially the sockeyes, can return from that distant place in the ocean and spawn in the same patch of gravel where they were born. So imprinted are they on those chemical cues. As salmon approach their home rivers, their color magically transforms from that silver color of their life in the ocean to the brilliant red of the sockeyes and the cohos and the chinooks, to the ochre and ivory of the pink salmon, and to the greenish and purple rainbow stripes of the chum salmon. And of course, they even change shape. How miraculous is that, that they go from those sleek ocean torpedoes into the males with their hump backs and their long hooked jaws. Now, some salmon spawn within just 100 or so yards of salt water, maybe even less, and others go immense distances to their spawning grounds. The longest migration is Chinooks that spawn in the Yukon River headwaters in the southern Yukon Territory in northern British Columbia. Some of those fish have swum 2,300 river miles up the Yukon and into its headwater tributaries. It takes them about two months. They're swimming on an average of about 35 miles per day. Well, it's just another one of those miraculous things about salmon that they can achieve such an incredible variation of their spawning journeys and habitats. Okay, migrating salmon don't feed once they're in the fresh water. They live only on their stored oily fat to meet the huge metabolic demands of swimming, of mating, of laying and fertilizing their eggs. But then think again about those Yukon River fish swimming 2,000 miles and the humpies right over here in Indian River that have only gone 50 yards or 100 yards upstream. Well, that doesn't happen just capriciously. The body condition of our humpies down here in Indian River deteriorates very quickly, and we can all watch it. Imagine those Yukon salmon, their body condition deteriorates extremely slowly, and yet I saw them this summer in the headwaters of the Yukon River looking exactly like the ones we see here right next to salt water. So each aspect of salmon behavior and physiology is genetically programmed for one thing, for the distance to their spawning grounds and also for other specific conditions in the home river. This means that salmon from every run 
and from each tributary are genetically distinct from all the others. That this amazing adaptation to a diverse array of habitats causes the spectacular genetic variability and the finely tuned adaptations of salmon to particular localized conditions. Just within Bristol Bay, I was reading recently, nine major river systems for salmon spawning, more than 1,000 distinct spawning populations of sockeye salmon in Bristol Bay. Imagine every time we sit down to salmon at the table, we are looking at a flat-out miracle right in front of us. So, for example, rivers where the bottom gravels are heavily scoured by winter rains. Apparently, the salmon, you know, need to be stronger to dig deeper reds, deeper nests in those kind of rivers. So they have to be bigger, stronger fish than the ones that spawn in the more peaceful rivers where there's not so much scouring, where the reds don't have to be as deep, and where the fish don't have to be as big. We know other examples of differences in the size of salmon right here around Sitka between Salmon Lake Creek and Necker Bay, where the fish are dramatically different in size, the sockeye salmon. Another remarkable thing about salmon is, of course, the mass synchronized death after spawning, bringing those nutrients from the far reaches of the ocean to fertilize the waters where the offspring of the salmon themselves will grow. Well, okay, of course salmon were almost certainly used by the first people who moved across the vast Bering Land Bridge into the New World from Asia about 12 to 15,000 years ago. And every year, for countless millennia, people have awaited the salmon and celebrated their arrival with ceremonies and feasts. The Koyukon Indian people in interior Alaska, who I was lucky enough to live with for a couple of years, have a way of looking at salmon as spiritual beings, and I think you'll find that common to Native American people all over the continent. Each fish has to be treated with humility and restraint and respect, honoring the fact that it's a spiritual being. Koyukon Indian people measure the summer and the fall by the salmon runs. July is called Ashnoga in their calendar. That means the king salmon month. August is San Laganoga, which is the silver salmon month. And September is Nochtlaganoga, the dog salmon month. There are still fish camps, of course, along the Yukon River and the Kayakuk River, the fish wheels turning out in front, the gill nets, the gray plumes of smoke rising from the smoke houses, the racks lined up with hanging fish, the elders teaching the kids how to set the nets, and the women showing how to cut the fish with their crescent-shaped ulus. And as Koyukon children roast half-dried salmon over the campfire, you'll sometimes hear them saying, well, now I see you coming up the Yukon River, and now you've turned up into the Kayakuk River, and now there you are passing the Dalbatna, and now you're passing the Nulaitna, and now you're passing the mouth of Hutliakatna River, and now here you are at our camp. Maybe it's at Dilbagatsulnihu. So the kids can trace the migration of the salmon and learn the geography of their homeland in that way. There are very few communities in Alaska that don't depend on salmon from the nearby rivers and lakes or the ocean. Even in the biggest cities like Anchorage, where people are lined up fishing along the banks of Ship Creek and Campbell Creek, right among the busy neighborhoods and the traffic of Alaska's biggest city. Everybody everywhere in Alaska loves salmon. You can eat them fresh, you can smoke them, you can cook them, you can dry them, or of course, you can sell them. 
It's hard to imagine a kid growing up in Alaska who doesn't know about salmon, who doesn't eat salmon, who hasn't fished for salmon, who hasn't helped prepare the dinner table or the smokehouse with salmon. And right here in Sitka, Alaska, where I live, most of the young people I know have either worked on fishing boats or in the processors. Throughout Alaska in 2011, commercial salmon fishermen earned $600 million from their catch. The total economic value of salmon, way higher than that. I haven't been able to track it down if you add in charter and sport fishing, processing, shipping, and the retail sales of these fish. Well, okay, history gives us a profoundly important perspective on the relationships between salmon and humankind. It came as a great surprise to me, especially from a book that I just finished reading called King of Fish, The Thousand-Year Run of Salmon by David R. Montgomery on the University of Washington faculty. This is an extraordinary book. The first known salmon regulation you will learn there more than a thousand years ago in the year 1030 A.D. in Scotland. By the 12th century in England, there were widespread prohibitions on dams and nets blocking salmon streams. Need I mention that those laws were widely ignored and that the runs were heavily overfished? In the Industrial Revolution in the 1700s and 1800s, dams proliferated, the forests were cleared, the rivers were channelized, the waters were polluted, and overfishing increased. By the 1850s, Atlantic salmon in Europe were badly depleted, and the declines continued until very recent times. And then the story gets even more incredible because exactly the same process was repeated when the Europeans colonized eastern North America. Dams, deforestation, urban and industrial pollution, sedimentation from agricultural runoff, and fishing as if there were no tomorrow, which of course there wasn't. Declines in Atlantic salmon were seen in the eastern United States by the 1750s, and they continued for the next 250 years or so. And today, as you know, the Atlantic salmon fisheries are nearly gone, certainly as a commercial enterprise. And then finally, the identical process was repeated with industrial settlement of the Pacific coast of North America. Different salmon species this time, the pace of change much faster, fishing far more intense, using more sophisticated technology, dams on a scale never seen before, blocking fish and depleting the water in the streams. The Columbia River system has 18 major dams on it today, 50 dams altogether that heavily impact the salmon runs. There's also sweeping transformations of the land in the Pacific Northwest and the ecosystems, agriculture, logging, urban development, mining and other industries, whole river systems radically transformed, simplified, channelized, all the complexity and the pools and the multiple channels that salmon need, gradually diminishing. Salmon farming and hatcheries, too complex a subject to go into, but yet another constellation of impacts or potential impacts on salmon. Nobody intended to damage or destroy our salmon runs. And we have known for decades, and in some cases for centuries, how to protect salmon. But more powerful interests have consistently prevailed over the well-being of salmon.
The loss of salmon, as you know, did not happen all at once. The runs have been impacted one river and one tributary at a time until one of the Earth's greatest natural phenomenon and most valuable living resources has dwindled to a ghost of its former self. It's a classic case of death by a thousand cuts. Salmon returns to the rivers of the Pacific Northwest, if I'm reading the biologist correctly, are now somewhere between 3 and 7% of their historic levels. But there is a brilliant exception to this litany of unremediated loss, and that's right here in Alaska. Now, things didn't look all that great in the early days. By the 1940s, Alaska's salmon were severely depleted by overfishing, especially the fish traps that blocked whole streams could take every fish. The battle against those fish traps and the large outside corporations that owned them had much to do with Alaska becoming a state. And once statehood came along, a new era of conservative, science-based management led to a dramatic increase or recovery in our salmon fisheries. This shows that salmon can be highly resilient as long as we carefully manage the fisheries and above all, protect the essential habitat for salmon spawning. But according to the biologists and others, the same processes that have impacted salmon runs in the lower 48 states and in Europe are either happening now or planned for Alaska. For example, hundreds of streams have been damaged by clear-cut logging here in the Tongass and on native lands in southeastern Alaska. The United States Forest Service, much to its credit, is now working to repair and restore some of these streams. Ocean trawlers, you've heard about it, I'm certain, in the news, catching, killing, and wasting many thousands of salmon every year, including the depleted stocks of Yukon River Chinooks. And growing interest in hydropower projects, most notably the Susitna Dam. The headwaters of the Susitna River near Anchorage would be the highest dam in the Western Hemisphere at 885 feet tall. The State Energy Authority is already seeking a license for construction of this dam that has been approved by the governor of Alaska. This is a major salmon spawning system for all five species of salmon. So it's an important issue for us to be thinking about. And then finally, I want to mention mines. Flushing sediments and waste into many watersheds. Dozens of new mines are being prospected or developed along Alaskan rivers or in the headwaters of these rivers in northwestern Canada. And by far the most controversial of all these mines is the Pebble Mine Project in the Bristol Bay Area. It's a huge deposit of gold and copper and molybdenum. I knew I wouldn't say that. <laughs> and molybdenum. Should we all say it three times fast? This would be one of the biggest mines in the world with an enormous reservoir for waste contained by one of the Earth's longest, or in fact, the Earth's largest earthen dam in an area that's famous for major seismic activity. It's at the headwater of a river system that sustains all five salmon species, and most importantly, as you may know, the biggest and most valuable sockeye salmon fishery in the world. The Pebble Mine is a classic example of the conflicting interests that surround the viability of salmon populations. Supporters emphasize jobs and economic benefits. Opponents emphasize the potential damage 
from pollutants that an escape from this immense containment pond within the high-risk quake area could pose for salmon. If we take care of the oceans where salmon grow and the rivers where salmon spawn, these fish will continue bringing hundreds of millions of dollars into Alaska's economy and providing huge amounts of food for Alaskan communities literally forever. Long after the oil runs dry, long after the natural gas is gone, long after truly renewable energy becomes a reality, long after the clear cuts have regrown, long after the mines have played out, we can continue to have salmon. My friend Sam Skaggs, who is a professional investor in Juneau, says this, Alaska's river systems are like a bank that pays huge dividends every year in salmon for all Alaskans. This ecosystem bank was highly perfected long before humankind ever existed. We cannot improve upon it. In most other places, the principal from this bank has been overdrawn, and the bank itself has been seriously damaged. So far, this hasn't happened in Alaska. Well, we might think, my friend Sam says, of salmon as God's capital. We can use it wisely or we can squander it. If we want to protect the salmon runs, we got to do it in exactly the same way that the salmon runs have been jeopardized. One river at a time. One tributary at a time. This requires that we make wise and careful economic and environmental choices and that we acknowledge that we cannot have it all. And we have to focus on the long-term benefits by always putting salmon first. Is this idea politically viable in Alaska? Could it possibly not be? This is one issue, if there ever was any, that can bring our diverse population of Alaskans together. Because every single one of us can gain immeasurably by taking care of our salmon. The beauty and complexity of salmon is far beyond anything humans have ever created. They make our computers look simple and elementary. <laughs> some of us. <laughs> It makes some of us look simple and elementary, too. <laughs> salmon are a testament to what the natural world can perfect, given millions of years to work on it. By comparison, we human beings, modern Homo sapiens, on this Earth for roughly 100,000 to 200,000 years, a split second in salmon time, we human beings are beginners. We are smart, but we are not terribly wise. We're smart enough to harness the power to snuff out in the blink of an eye what took millions of years to perfect. But are we wise enough to leave the infinitely greater genius of nature intact? Consider that each of us who eats salmon carries inside our bodies nutrients from those fish from the far reaches of the ocean the same as the seals and the bears, the same as the eagles in the trees. So wherever we are, we are like salmon walking. We are salmon speaking. We are the salmon's eyes looking at themselves. 
and by protecting the miracle of salmon in their world, we are protecting ourselves in the company of what might be the Earth's most miraculous creatures. Thank you. Thank you. Encounters is a production of the Island Institute, KCAW, and the Sitka Sound Science Center in Sitka, Alaska. Written and narrated by Richard Nelson, developed by Ken Fate, produced and edited by Lisa Bush, website produced by Liz McKenzie. Encounters is funded by the North Pacific Research Board, the Educational Foundation of America, the Johnson Family Foundation, Robert Osborne, and Gerald Lorraine. Special thanks to the Alaska Sustainable Salmon Fund, a program of the National Oceanic and Atmospheric Administration, to Sitka Whale Fest, and to Jan Straley, Lisa Bush, and Lily Harold. For more information about the subjects covered by Encounters and to podcast the program, go to encountersnorth.org and join us on Facebook. Ah. Ah.